take your Bibles now and let's study Jesus and why we do all this. Luke 19. Why would I say it? Why would I say, God bless you. <laughs> why, would I, why would we do all that we do? It's so fun to be a part of a church that truly believes Jesus is real. I was talking to Levi Kittle just right before the service began, and he said, hey, I want to share a quick story. He was over in eastern Oregon, just getting ready to do some hunting, and walking around a grocery store, and somebody was staring at him. You know, those eastern Oregon people are weirdos, you know, and, and they, they recognized him and saw his hat and his Jesus' real swag and said, are you from South Beach Church? You're from South Beach Church? I used to, I've been there before. I used to go there. Now I'm here. And I, man, you, just a dead giveaway and how cool it is that we would be able to, in some little way or even some big ways, make Jesus more attainable, more famous, more relatable. To believe it or not, and that's offensive to some people, you can't make Jesus famous. He's already famous. I, I get it. But he's asked us to let our light shine, to do good things, to be active. He's doing stuff, and there's a war right now for right and wrong, for truth and lies. You guys know that, for good and bad. There's so many other doctrines and teachings, and Jesus screams above them all and says, just look at me a little bit. Study my life. Make a decision. And once you make that decision, it should be then seen and evidenced in your life and the way you live and who you are. And this is why it's so exciting to be a part of a church that loves to put our money where our mouth is and to say great things, but also to do great things partner with organizations and make ourselves available. When churches like ours buy chairs like this, we do so. We call it flexible seating on purpose. So we can, if we are led to, stack them and get rid of them and do other things in here. We love to have a church that's kind of falling apart a little bit and being used and being one that's available to God. And maybe you would today even say, Lord, I feel like I'm falling apart a little bit, but I want to be used. I want to be used especially as the days get weirder and darker. And so what we study today in Luke 19, Jesus would say, hey guys, this is so epic. As a matter of fact, Luke, the writer of Luke, wrote his epistle and he said, I wrote this to you, O Theophilus, Luke 1 verse 4, in order that you would be certain of the things that you were instructed. See, Theophilus had heard a few things about Jesus and Luke said, I want to make sure that you got it, bro. I want to make sure you know, and you guys remember when we started the book of Luke, we talked about Theophilus, who this book's written to. Theophilus literally means Theos, Philo, Theophilus, the lover of God. And if you're a lover of God here today, Jesus would say to you, thank you. Thank you for choosing to respond to God's love and letting your life now be evidenced by love. And he wants you and I to study this book to make sure that you and I become those who live what we believe. See, it all begins in your mind, okay? What you believe will determine what you do. And so what we believe even today about the Lord will determine who we are. So I'm going to ask you guys to bow your heads and pray, and we're going to begin with prayer before we even read the text, and then we're going to begin with the preaching. Father, we bow our heads and our hearts before you in Jesus' name, and we ask, Lord, that you'd be honored in this time of study and preparation Lord, as we just heard a bunch of announcements about men's breakfasts and women's gatherings and clothing drives and free photos. And Lord, last week we watched a video of Safe Families for Children and dozens and dozens of people in our church signed up for more info. Yeah, we want to know. We want to know. What can we do? And Jesus, we thank you that you have stirred us and compelled us in such a way to be those who would desire to partner with you in your kingdom who realize, Lord, that you have left because you said you would, but you are returning because you declared that you would. And you've asked us to stay busy and to be a part of things. And so, Jesus, we tune in to you now, and we pray for mercy during this time of study, a blessing, Lord. I pray for your gifts to be poured out, Lord, in preaching and in listening and responding and in doing. God, we love you in advance for what you've already done. Do more. Bless the kiddos too, Lord. I got my one son upstairs and my little's at home right now. And I pray you just bless the kids, Lord, in the eight to 10 room, the five to seven room, the three to four room, the zero to two room, and the other room. Lord, bless them. Bless the teachers too. We thank you so much for what you've done. Do more right now. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said? Amen. Amen. Let's read verse 40 to the end of this chapter. In verse 40, actually, let's read verse 39. It's just at the table. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. This is as he was riding into Jerusalem. Everyone began to worship. 
and they got in trouble for it. Hey, take your Jesus' real hat off. You can't wear that in school. Hey, take that off. Hey, turn it down. Would you stop posting that on Facebook every single day? Stop that, Jesus responds, verse 40. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. And now as he drew near, he's on a donkey, a baby donkey. Zechariah 9.9 said this would happen. The Bible says in verse 41 that he saw the city and he wept over it. This word for wept is not silent tears, you know, man tears, just normal crying, like a little snivel, <laughs> you know. It is a word used for lamenting and wailing, which if you're like me, it's kind of hard to imagine Jesus kind of lose it on a donkey for a minute. I almost don't even know what that looks like as Jesus saw the city and wailed and lamented over it. And yet even as he did this, look what he says in verse 42, if you had known through tears streaming down his face. Even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. And I wonder if in verse 43 and 44, he looked up beyond Jerusalem into the clouds as he now predicts their future less than 50 years from this event. He sees it in his mind's eye, what is going to happen to Jerusalem. Mind you, he's there riding into Jerusalem. The Pharisees just said, hey, have your people be quiet. He said, if, they, if they're quiet, the rocks will cry out. And he wept for Jerusalem and then began to give this prophecy, knowing that they didn't see it. And here's what he says, verse 43. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. We're gonna study that portion thoroughly. You who are history students know that this is exactly what would happen with Titus and the commander Vespasian, 70 AD in the 10th Legion of Rome as they would march in against Jerusalem and besiege her for 143 days. And after 143 days march into that city and after the carnage and the wreckage, 1.5 million Jews would have starved to death and or been slaughtered, men, women, and children. 40 years from Jesus saying this. What he said was incredible. Not one stone shall be left on top of the other. Now as he was saying this, they looked up at the temple and looked back at him and said, are you cray cray? Have you seen this? Do you know how long it took Herod to make this temple? It would not have made sense at all. And yet Jesus, weeping and lamenting, showing this side of God, this emotion that we're not necessarily comfortable with, as he saw in their future the devastation. Jesus goes from being sad and weeping to being mad and angry. Look at verse 45. Then he went into the temple. This could have been that same day. Most believe it was the next morning. That after Jesus wept, he left. Never would he stay in Bethlehem or Jerusalem during these five days. He would always leave every night, going back to Bethany with his friends. Verse 45, then he went into the temple, and he began to drive out those who bought and sold in it, saying to them, it is written, my house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And he was teaching daily in the temple. But the chief priests and the scribes and the leaders of the people sought to destroy him. Listen. And were unable to do anything for all the people were very attentive to hear him. Just so you see this triplet of stories. Read verse 1 of chapter 20. Now it happened on one of those days as he taught the people in the temple and preached the gospel. This is during the five days in Jerusalem before his crucifixion. It says that together with the elders, they confronted him, verse 2. And they spoke to him saying, hey, tell us by what authority or are you doing these things? Or who is the one who gave you this authority? It's a quiz to see why Jesus would say and do the things he's done. Look at verse 3. But he answered and said to them, I'll also ask you one thing and you answer me. You ever have a kid like that? <sighs> verse 4. He says the baptism of John three years ago. Was it from heaven or from men? Who did it? Where did his authority come from? He's being questioned on his authority. Well, let me ask you, let me, let me answer your question with a question I'll ask you. I see Jesus being snarky here, a little sarcastic. 
which to me is very encouraging, but anyways. Verse 5, and as they reasoned among themselves, saying, well, if we say it's from heaven, it's going to say then, why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us, for they're persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it was from. And, Jesus, and by the way, a non-answer is an answer, just so you guys know. A non-decision for Jesus is a decision against Jesus. Just, I'm just letting you know. There is no neutral ground. Jesus said you're for or against. You're gathering or you're scattering. That's all there is. And they said, well, we don't know. We don't, we, which is funny. We're not going to get here. I'm getting ahead of myself now. But they, hey, is John from heaven or from men? They're like, we don't know. It's like, yes, you do. You just don't like the answer because you do know he's from heaven. And you do know that Jesus is real. And you do know that this is legit. And people do know. I believe in their knowers. They know that somewhere deep within there's a conflict of interest. And to claim Jesus is king and to claim the kingdom is coming would then disorient your priorities on life. And everything that you once valued would have to be shifted and adjusted. Once Jesus becomes real and king, holy smokes, everything's different. Everything's different. And this is what Jesus is advocating for and commanding and demanding. Verse, verse 8, and we're going to jump back up to verse 41. And Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. That's a little snarky. A little snarky. Those kind of answers will get you killed in those days. And he would die shortly thereafter. Here we see Jesus go through a series of emotions that for me as a physical man are helpful in illuminating. He goes from sad to mad to snarky. Okay? Kind of sounds like full-time ministry. You start with a broken heart for people, and then you try and fix them, and it doesn't work, and so you get real mad about it, and then in order to cope, you just become sarcastic, you know, and you just kind of, same with parenting or marriage, you know, it's all this, you know, it's like, only difference is that Jesus does all of these things perfectly. You and I do not, and so don't hear me when I advocate for snarkiness or sarcasm. I'm doing so in a way where Jesus is able to zoom out and see things from both ends. And some of us have a problem with being too sarcastic or not sarcastic enough. You take everything way too seriously. Some of you don't take things seriously enough. And we're going to try and find a blend and a balance here because our lives and what we do matters. And you guys have remembered from the last three teachings that Jesus is going away to prepare a kingdom and he one day will return. And until he returns, he's instructed you and I to do stuff. Be about his business. Let our light shine. Don't let it go dark. Go out into the world. Don't stay hidden. Do things and make sure that we prepare a place for him. And as groomsmen would prepare the way for the groom and the bride, we're to be doing just that. That's what he said. So in a nutshell, let me put it this way. What you do now in this life matters. Okay? How many actually agree with that, that what you do in this life matters? Okay, that's why you're here at the 9 a.m. service, driving through the rain, you know, it's pitch black. I've got to get to church. I've got to figure this out. And, and, and it's true. When you realize that the king is coming, everything he said so far has come true, and everything he said that will come true will happen as he said. And so you and I, we need to realize that our lives matter. And that's why we look into God's word. This is so important. It's so elementary. It's so basic. That's why we study God's word on Sundays. That's why I encourage you to be people who read the Bible throughout the week, who understand it, who spend the rest of your life studying God's word. Because we learn in God's word, here's a few things, who he is, what life's all about, and what we're to be doing. And when we study Jesus, there's a little disconnect because if you're like me, you esteem Jesus as 100% God. Okay, he deserves my worship, my sacrifice, my allegiance. No one else does. I can't worship anybody else. That's not right. But I can worship God. Jesus, and I can worship him as such. He's 100% God, but he's also 100% man, which is where my mind starts to get a little bit overheated and sparks, you know, and, and I begin to have a disconnect that Jesus actually understands what it's like to be a human, and he lived in that capacity. The Bible says that he was tempted in all points and yet without sin. He knows what it's like to be lonely, to be discouraged, to be tempted, to be attacked, he knows what it's like to be happy, to be full, to be zealous, to be on mission. And he knows all of these things both from the vantage point of being God, that's awesome, but also being like you and like me. And so we can learn from Jesus what this looks like. And so today I read to you a triplet of stories. That is one where he weeps, he's sad, we call that weeping Jesus. And then one where he goes into the temple and he's mad, we call that angry Jesus. And then one where he's being accused and 
attacked by uh, religious nuts, and we call that sarcastic Jesus. You ever been attacked by religious nuts? Raise your hand. Raise your hand. Only me? Okay, cool. And um, it can drive you to a sarcastic position when people are coming at you with their crazy ideas and crazy questions, and it happens. And let me ask you a question, make sure I'm teaching the right crowd here this morning. Uh, Jesus cried, and he got sad. Have you ever been really, really, really sad? Okay, just give me a nod if you've been really, really sad. You, get, you know it. Okay, Jesus also uh, saw evil, and he saw wickedness, and he got really, really, really mad. Have you ever seen the wickedness in our culture or society, specifically here within the church? And have you gotten really, really mad before? Me too. Jesus also had to deal with some wingnuts and religious zealous haters and uh, his response was this sarcastic and he became witty in order to win and here's a question that's easy to answer have you ever become sarcastic and witty <laughs> that's the easy one isn't it it's the easy one Here, here's my point and i want to make this connection for you because we can learn a lot from jesus uh, because some of you don't get sad enough we can learn from this jesus rolls up to jerusalem there's people worshiping right then remember Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the high. They're saying, Hosanna, save now. It's going crazy. People are palm branches, nuts. And all of a sudden, they look over at Jesus, and he's weeping like, somebody said something wrong. You know, why is he weeping? He just lost it, wailing. And then he gives this prophecy of the next 40 years, what's going to happen. He says, guys, you go, oh, no. Not that it was out of his control, but that they had missed it. And he was sad. And so my question for you is, do you still get sad when you see the lostness of our culture? Here's what happens, actually. Our hearts are overly saturated with sad news. Okay? We live in a, a different culture where news is available all day long. It used to be that you'd have to wait till 6 p.m. to watch the evening news. And even at 6 p.m. on the evening news with Ted Koppel and uh, you know, all those people way back in the day, they would just give the news, you know, international and local. And it wasn't this crazy you know, slaughter fest. Nowadays, it's all day long and news reports and there's 24-hour news channels and there's news on your phone and you can find sad stories all day long. So if you're like me, you're kind of exhausted in your grievance, in your sadness and sorrow for the world. And I want to just warn you, be careful of that. And maybe even today, you'd say, Lord, give me, just break my heart for what breaks yours. Matter of fact, there's a worship song that has that in it, that line. And whenever I hear that line, something in my flesh is I actually don't want my heart to break for whatever God's heart breaks for because I know that my heart's going to break then. And I, like you, maybe have protected my heart. I don't want it to break anymore. Jesus demonstrates for us in his 100% manness, okay? He's broken for the lost. This will change everything for you. It'll change the way you look at your spouse, your kids, your neighbors, some of us are so quick to go right to snarky, okay, right to cynical. Let's just go to cynical. Jesus is only cynical and sarcastic with the religious nuts, not the broken people. You got to make a difference, especially if you're in the ministry or you're serving. Keep those hearts soft. Some of you don't get sad enough. We just turned it off. Some of us don't get angry enough, right? There's things that are evil, just not sad and broken, but downright wrong. And there's something within each one of our hearts that we have capped and we have stopped. Jesus goes from sad, and instead of just being sad and not doing anything, he turns his sadness into action, which I think is kind of cool, okay? His sadness is then driven because he sees the nation of Israel having rejected him, and he goes to the heart of the issue, which is the temple. He says, let's just go to the top. Let's go see what's going on. And he walks into the temple, and he drives out those money changers and those who sold wares and the people who were ripping others off. You'll remember if you studied the scriptures that Jesus does this twice in his ministry, once at the beginning and once at the end, okay? It's symbolic of Jesus wanting to cleanse our hearts because the heart of every issue, the heart of every issue is an issue of your heart. My wife and I were talking about issues this week. You ever talk about issues with your spouse? Praise God. And my wife was just recalling that she's learned in our 17 years of marriage that no matter what it is, no, ma no matter what it is, that it really comes down to where God is in my heart or her heart at any given time. Where's, where's Jesus at? Did, did he get misplaced? Did we forget him? And so Jesus here says, let's go to the temple. Let's go to the heart. This connection with God. If you're connecting with God, chances are things are going to be good. If there's a disconnect with God, everything's gone crazy. Okay, just fire up the carnival music and see what happens. It's going to be nuts. And so Jesus, in his sadness, 
then turns it into action, which is fueled by righteous indignation. Okay, and for those of you who don't know that, Jesus was angry without sin. It's very easy to be angry with sin, okay? As a matter of fact, it's more common in our day. If you do let your anger and frustration uh, fester, it probably will turn into unrighteous anger. Don't do that, don't do that. The book of James tells you and me that the wrath of man will not accomplish the righteousness of God. That verse will save you from so much grief. I'm gonna say it again. The wrath of man will not accomplish the righteousness of God. Now, I want the righteousness of God. I want God's righteousness, and I can mask my anger and wrath into getting it. He says, time out, technical foul, doesn't work that way. But your wrath can be holy. Your anger for what is happening in our culture, and it's easy to say culture and look way out there, but even in our own society or our own homes, and to use that anger for a righteous path. And again, just make sure you hear me when I say this, because if you're wondering, why is this guy talking about being angry? Why is he justifying Jesus' anger? Did you know that one attribute of love is wrath? Okay? Love is not the absence of wrath. Okay? It is the presence of focused wrath, controlled wrath. Anything that comes against my relationship with God or my wellness with my family should have an element of wrath approached to it, applied to it, because it is endangering that which I love. Okay, all of this, again is being demonstrated by Jesus. And so I asked you, if you get sad, if you get angry, some of you don't get sad enough, some of you don't get angry enough, and some of you don't get sarcastic enough. And that's really hard to believe, but I put it in my notes, so I said it. <laughs> but I deal with people that just don't, they don't get it. They don't, they don't, they don't, they're not able to see beyond. And what I just say, zoom out from the beginning and the end, and, and you'll, you'll take a little breath, and you'll be able to kind of navigate through the difficulties of sadness and anger and not freak out. In the next five days, Jesus would exercise a lot of kind of snarky sarcasm, even as he was marching to death, because he saw the beginning from the end. And some of you aren't sarcastic enough, not most of you, most of you are too sarcastic, okay, figure that out, okay, we'll take communion later. But some of you need to realize, you know what, that's gone crazy, this is crazy, that's probably crazy, I'm not going to let it freak me out, I'm just going to attack it and go through it with a broken heart, with a righteous anger, and with the ability to see through this by zooming out a little bit. Let me say it differently, because I just said some of you aren't sad enough, and some of you aren't angry enough, and some of you aren't sarcastic enough. Uh, Some of you are too sad over the wrong things to be sad about. And some of you are too angry over the wrong things to be angry about. You ever been sad about something that's foolish? Okay, it's called high school, high school, and uh, sad about everything, everything. You ever been in high school? Man, high school is crazy. Your heart's broken like half the time, and then you, you grow up, and you're like, what the heck was that about? Like, there was nothing, you know, it's just a joke, you know. Anyways, and so, so we get into adulthood, and we get sad about certain things. You just get devastated. Matter of fact, this weekend, I had to, I, I got a few things came across my, I, my desk. I don't have a desk, but they came across my, my, my phone or whatever. I found, you know, it's like, oh, man. And it just kind of worked me over for a second. And I just stopped. I was like, wait a minute. Let's just, let's zoom out, okay? Let's apply a little bit of snarky sarcasm here, just a little bit, just a little bit so I can see what's going on. And I realized that, that's not worth my, my peace. My peace getting destroyed, that's not worth it. And I was able to pull myself out of the sad ditch when it didn't deserve me to be there. That's not worth it. How many, let's be honest, how many guys like to be in the sad ditch, okay? You like to be weeping and lamenting and wailing and broken. I don't like to be there. You gotta go there for that which is worth it though. You gotta be able to go there. When you're holding the hand of a loved one who's dying, when you're holding the hand of a loved one who's living and you just love them, go, go love them with an with a open, broken, bleeding heart. I love you. Don't be oh, calloused. But are there things in your life where you're so bummed about right now? We're like, wait a minute. This is my fantasy football league. I don't think I should be in the toilet so much about this or, or the stock markets or bitcoins going upside down or things that are irrelevant. Really, really. Some of us also get mad about things. I see stuff on Facebook, just people getting so mad about things that are trivial. And, and, and I can't say that I'm free from that. Getting mad and angry over things that don't matter. And the Lord would say, hey, the wrath of man won't fix things. Okay? You've got to have that discernment where, like I said, Jesus was 100% God and 100% man. And we learn from him. Man, how did he do that? How did he get sad over the right things and then turn that, that sorrow into action? He did something about it instead of just sitting there lamenting, 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 lamenting. He's like, let's go clean stuff up. Wouldn't it be radical if your heart was broken for something 
Let's say something as simple as the people in Lebanon. Your heart can be broken for them. Okay, cool, I'm going to go help them. Or let's say your heart is broken for our local hospitals that need blood, okay? Oh, man, they need blood. Oh, we're doing a blood drive. I can, I can put that into action. Or let's say your heart was broken for the Celebrate Recovery ministry that is now having growing pains because there's too many people to take care of. You said, I can turn that into action. This is how it's supposed to be. Or maybe there's a relative, a grandson of yours or a granddaughter that's going off the deep end and you need to schedule a trip to go visit them or some more carpet time on your knees praying for them, whatever the case is. And Jesus here does that. Some of us also, I've mentioned a few times, are not just too sad over the wrong things and too mad over the wrong things, but we're too sarcastic. We're, we're, too, we're too full of ourselves, and we don't honor God. We, we're not good for anyone, so we need to always be careful of that as well. Jesus, though, does all of these things well, and we can learn from him and be more like him. He was sad. He was mad. He was snarky, all about the right things and in the right levels. Okay, so let's just study this out again. I want you to, you know the context. He's coming into Jerusalem. He's being worshiped. He's being attacked. Quiet down your worshipers. And then Jesus knows the future from the present. And he has to wrestle with the sadness that will turn into action for his who he loves. Look at verse 41. Now, as he drew near, he saw the city. And he wept over it. God bless you. Jesus here has been on mission uh, since birth and even before the world began. This was decided that Jesus would come as the rescuer and that he would give himself over to humanity. And here we see the climax, the last week of Jesus' life, the passion of the Christ. And the Bible says that even as he rides in to Jerusalem on this donkey fulfilling scripture, that he sees the city and he's broken with compassion and weeps over the city as he drew near, Jesus in the scriptures is only recorded twice as crying. Uh, I'm sure he cried more times. The other time is in John 11 at Lazarus' funeral, and it's the shortest verse in all the Bible. John 11:35 says what, church? You guys are theologians. Good job, good job. And the uh, shortest verse. Remember the second shortest verse in the Bible I taught you three weeks ago, maybe six weeks ago? I can't remember it either. But anyways... Um, <laughs> It was in here. It was in the book of Luke. Uh, I actually, actually do remember it. Uh, here it is. It was something about Lot. Oh, yeah. No, Lot's wife. It was, oh, yeah. Remember Lot's wife. That's the second shortest book. Anyways, I'm off topic, off topic, so scratch that from the tape. And uh, so Jesus is only seen, though, twice weeping. I just want to put this point out there. Here he's weeping for Jerusalem, and in John 11, he's weeping for Lazarus and for his family, which I think is kind of cool. The only times that Jesus is shown as weeping is not for his own problems, but for other people's problems. Okay, like I said, some of you are, t are too sad, sad for things that are not going to be fixed or not right, and you need to figure that out, things that aren't worth your sadness. Jesus, when he expressed sorrow, was for other people, which is magical. Okay, I've told you, the guy, you guys this before, I'll tell you again. The prescription for depression is this. Here's the prescription for depression. Think about yourself, okay, and you will be depressed. That's, I'm not a doctor, but I can write your prescription daily. If you want to have a counseling later, just think about yourself more, and you'll be more depressed, Okay. The solution for depression is the opposite, okay? Think less of yourself and more of others. I promise you. I promise you. When you consider other people in their trials and their temptations and their difficulties, and two things will happen. Your eyes will get off of yourself, which is amazing, amazing, a miracle. Your eyes are off of yourself, and then they're onto somebody else in need. And compassion and empathy is, is produced inside of you in the very heart of God. And Jesus here, when he weeps, isn't for him his own issues, Nelly, did Jesus have any issues to face? Everything going on? Any reason why Jesus could have wept and wailed for what he was about to endure? It's not the story. But how, how many of you guys could swallow Jesus wailing and dragging his feet? I don't want to go. I don't want to do it. I don't want to be separated from my father. I don't want to bear the sins of the world. I don't want the nails through my hands, and I don't want the crown on my head. I don't want it. It's too scary. How many guys would at least be, yeah, I get it. He doesn't do that. He, he's not wailing for himself. He's about to go through hell and back for you and for me. That's not, he sees their problems. This is a magical, miraculous tool for you and for me to have empathy and compassion on somebody else in your time of duress. 
I don't mean to make light of any situations that are difficult for you going on in your lives right now, but if you choose to walk through your stuff and live for somebody else's stuff, your depression, your anxiety, your fear, your weakness, your self-worth will all be taken care of. If you demand and command your own way, your own service, your own agenda, day in and day out, you will continue to be full of anxiety, depression, fear, and confusion. I promise you. Jesus, of all people in the world, was justified in his own fear, in his own anxiety, in his, his own hesitation. Exercise none of that. You say, well, it's because he's God. I get that. He's also 100% man. You and I will instantaneously become better people when we deny ourselves and live for the betterment of somebody else instantaneously. Whether it's coaching, whether it's parenting, whether it's serving your employees, your peers at your job place that don't respect you, serving them, you will instantly become a better person. Jesus here is demonstrating this for us. He weeps over Jerusalem. He weeps because of what's going to happen to them. Have you ever stopped to just consider, and I don't know everyone's story here, have you stopped to consider how good you have it compared to other people? You got your stuff, right? You got some stuff. I got issues. I, got, I, could, I could stack a whole plate of issues. And there are literally billions of people on planet Earth right now that would instantaneously switch everything for you. Oh, I would love your life. Oh, but you don't know, I've got all this, I've got, no, no. You have it good, so good. And we forget that. And Jesus here shows us, let's, let's let our hearts be broken. Look at verse 41 again. As he drew near the city, he wept over it. How do you handle those around you who reject Jesus as he handled it in that very day? Does your heart break for them? I'm kind of an evangelist and kind of zealous at that in my ideals and mindset. And if I'm not careful, my heart won't break for those who reject Jesus, but I'll get snarky and sarcastic toward them just quickly. And Jesus, I want you to, I want you to hurt for that person. I want you to weep for them. I want you to be broken for that person. Acts chapter 17, one of my favorite chapters in all the Bible. You can read it later and talk about it in your life group this week. In Acts chapter 17, Paul arrives to Athens. The Bible tells us he was chased out of Berea and Thessalonica just weeks before, and so he's by himself, and he shows up to Athens. Luke and Timothy were riding a boat to get to him later, and as he shows up to Athens, the Bible says he's kind of insecure and afraid until he goes into the marketplace and he sees the city is given over to idols and idolatry. In that day, in Greece, in Athens, it was more likely to see a temple for a false god and idols than it was to see a real person walking around. There was 30,000 idols. It was crazy. And the Bible says there in the, the beginning statements of Acts chapter 17 in Athens there that Paul's spirit was provoked. And so he went into the marketplaces, the synagogues, and into the open squares, appealing to people to give their lives to Jesus. I read that, I'm like, dude, I've been to San Francisco before. You know what I'm saying? I've been to Tijuana. I've been to LA. I've been to, San, I've been to Seattle. I've been there. And, the, and I didn't find myself, you know, broken for the people that were so lost. I found myself, ooh, snarky and cynical, you know. <laughs> These guys are cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. Like. Anyways, I'll stop right there. Jesus, though, sees the depravity. Listen, sees the immorality. This could change your whole life. Because it's so easy to discern what's wrong and who's wrong and they're wrong and that governor's wrong and that system's wrong. Okay. Jesus weeps. He weeps for the lost. A few days ago, you guys probably read the story about uh, John uh, Chow. And uh, John Chow is a 27-year-old missionary there in India. And if you don't know the story, he, a long story short, he'd been there for many, many uh, months and years planning to reach an unreached people group. There's an island there off the coast of India that nobody has ever uh, made it to. They're savages. They've not been reached, and the Indian government has protected them. And so John Chow had on his heart, like, I, I want to reach them. I, I, I read the book, and it says to reach the unreached, and nobody's reached them. And 
So he spent years learning their dialect and gaining medical uh, training and the ability to communicate and eventually go under radar. And you guys, you guys read the story, and he, he found himself, he paid almost $400 to sail to this uh, island and rode over there himself. And the first day as he made contact with these uh, natives, they fired arrows at him, and his waterproof Bible got one of the arrows, and he boo, took off running, you know, and, and, uh, and he, was, he was broken for them. And so the next day, he wrote 13 pages in his diary to his mom and to his readers, and stating, I don't, I don't want this to be the last day of my life, but I fear this is the final sunset I'll ever see. And the next day, he went back to this island and rode over there, and he was there ministering. Uh, to the best of his ability, he brought some uh, fish and some supplies, some rope to give to them as an offering. And as he approached this a tribe that had never been reached at all. His final words before being killed as he yelled were, my name is John. Jesus loves you. And I love you. And he took his last breath and died. And it's crazy, the reaction in today's global community. Even within evangelicals like you and I, who think, that was a suicide mission. What did he expect? And all these snarky, cynical thoughts come to our mind. What was he doing? And you and I hopefully have taken time to reason with what he was doing in contrast to what you're doing, what I'm doing for the gospel. Not all are called to the same path, but we're called to the same message. And I was actually reading and following the story semi-close, semi-close. And there are organizations global organizations that are furious at what he did. And the one that made me fall out of my chair the most was this organization that was so furious that what the danger he put this tribe in because of the possibility of pathogens he could bring to this tribe that they had not been exposed to, such as the common cold. They said, what if he brought the common cold to that island, risking their health? How dare he? And I can see that argument, okay, a little bit. And how contrasting and confusing that argument is when applied to every other culture in our society that we impose our beliefs on and impose our governmental stances on. And yet this one order, you can't do that. And here John Chow saying, hey, my message isn't Gazunite, you have a cold. My message is Jesus loves you and I love you. And nobody's taken that message to you. Due to bureaucracy and challenges, I get it. I understand. Barely. Was it the most methodical approach of John Chow? I don't know. It didn't last very long. Jesus here, by the way, is also going to die for weeping over Jerusalem. And so lest you attack John Chow as being a failure or the heck's his problem? Who does he think he is going to an illegal island? I think he's just following his master. I think he's just doing what, what he felt best. And I, I don't know John Chow, but just in reading about it, he, he had more humility than, than, than I do, more love than I do, more zeal than I do, and a willingness to, he even foregoed relationships with gals his whole life he didn't want to break someone else's heart as he gave himself as a martyr. I just, I just, we need to be sad for the right things. Look what Jesus says in verse 42. He says, oh, Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem. He says, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. He laments and he weeps their lostness, and he says something very specific, which I think is what drove John Chow as well. If you'd known, especially in these your days, the things that make for your peace, did you know that the mission of Jesus, the mission of John Chow, the mission of South Beach Church, the mission of the Bible, the mission of Jesus' real shirts, the mission, hopefully, of your Facebook account is one of peace? It truly is peace for your past, okay? Jesus can go into your past, and he can take care of all that. Only he can do that. Only he can give you peace for your past, peace for your present. 
Only Jesus can take your present situation and speak life from beginning to end and help you zoom out and see it and peace for your future. Only Jesus can say, peace I give to you. My peace I leave with you. This is it. This is what I'm doing. And here Jesus is weeping because they wouldn't accept his peace. I, I pray that's not your story. I hope you've accepted his peace for your past. I hope you have total peace. Okay, peace for your present. I hope your message is peace for the people around you. Okay, not just peace, you know, hey, peace, like peace without teeth. Jesus says, no, no, I'm, a, I'm, about, to go, I'm about to go ham on the devil. Okay, I'm about to do this. I'm gonna earn the peace that I give to you. This is why we do everything we do at South Beach. This is why the stream's online right now, why we're doing flash mobs, why we do Hope in the Park, why we do Thanksgiving meals, why we have photos here, why we go caroling, why we go to Lebanon. It's the mission and message of peace. Look what Jesus says in verse 42. He says, if you had known even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace. But now they're hidden from your eyes. That's a scary verse. Some translations actually say it this way, but now you can't see it. And this is a scary doctrine I'm about to teach, and I don't know where the boundary is, but there is a point of no return for those who reject Jesus as their king. If you continue to push him away, okay, he will eventually give you your wish. I believe if you got a pulse, okay, you got a chance. But I don't know where that line is. Genesis chapter 6, God says, I will not strive with the spirit of man forever. There will be a day where God will strive with you. He will attempt for you. He will woo you. He will give you yet another sunrise and another sunset. Or even this morning during our 8.30 prayer time, which you're all invited to, during 8.30 prayer, just a, a, a rainbow appeared right over the ocean this morning. God's promise. Someone took a picture and sent it to me. I was here praying. But Jesus says you can't see it. And I'll tell you something right here this morning. If you're listening online or you're here joining us, Oftentimes people say, I just want God to show me something. He says right here, your eyes are blind. Now, had Jesus shown them stuff already? Like, had he done things, healed the blind, healed the lame, healed the dead, healed the deaf? He had done things, and yet they can't see it. Listen, 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 because they wouldn't see it. This is crazy town to me. There are people today right now, I can't see it. No, no. it's because you won't see it. John 6:68, my favorite verse. Look it up. John 6:69, the next verse says, and we have both come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter says, we believe, that's first, and we know, that's second. People say, once I know, then I'll believe. <clears throat> believe what he's already said, what he's already given, what he's already produced, what he's already accomplished, believe that, and you will have saving faith. Boom. You believe it. Jesus said it. I believe it, and that settles it. And Jesus here had done so much, orchestrating this whole event, riding in on a donkey, doing what he did, healing who he healed. And now he says, you, got, you can't see it. It's been hidden from your eyes. Look at verse 43 and 44. I fear we won't get as far as I wanted to this morning. Verse 43 and 44 says, for days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you and surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. This is a horrible prophecy. It's horrible. It's so horrible that Jesus is weeping. Now, Jesus could stop this event, right, in his sovereignty. He could stop it, but instead he's warning them from it. He's saying, guys, repent. Get peace right now. This, is, this has to happen because of your rebellion. It's going to happen, but it's not going to happen to naive ears. You know it's coming. And they were like, what's he talking? As a matter of fact, if he said not one stone will be left on top of another, they would have looked at him, the Pharisees, like, dude, you cray-cray. Those stones, the Herodian stones, the foundation of the Temple Mount still exist. Every stone on top of it is now down on the ground, craters the size of vehicles from those stones that were toppled. Some of the Herodian foundational stones weigh 500 tons. The heaviest one is 666 tons of pure stone. That's over a million pounds. And Jesus said, yeah, they're all coming down. <laughs> I just doesn't make any, what? And if you know your history, the Spacey and the Titus roll in. And when they sack the city of Jerusalem, they light the entire city on fire. The temple itself is burned to the ground. And the ornate gold furniture and ornaments and everything within the temple melted. And all of that gold ran down the cracks of those stones 
And after the carnage and the cooling, the Roman soldiers took those stones one by one and broke them apart and pushed them off in order to access that gold, thus fulfilling this horrible prophecy. It's history. It's perfect. Josephus writes about it. Jesus says something crazy, though. He says it twice. Verse 41 and 42. In verse 42 and verse 44. He says, even in this day, your day. And he goes on in verse 44 to say, because you did not know the time of your visitation. What Jesus says here is interesting because he's giving to us the understanding that they should have been ready for this. You who are Bible students know this prophecy. Let me give it to you quickly in closing. Jesus said, this is the day. The day of the donkey for sure. Zechariah 9, 9. This is the day. Didn't you guys see this is happening? But in verses 42 and 44, he says, the day of your visitation, the time of your visitation. If you don't know this, I'm going to say it quickly. We'll wrap up and bring it about next week as well. Daniel chapter 9, the children of Israel did not live in Jerusalem. There was no Jerusalem. They lived in Babylon. And Daniel was given a prophecy in Daniel chapter 9. And God told Daniel that from the going forth of the command to rebuild Jerusalem, there would be 69 heptads, or 69 seven-year periods, or 483 years, according to the Jewish calendar of a 360-day year. And he said, from the time the command to rebuild was given, there shall be Messiah the Prince. March 14th, 445 B.C., Artaxerxes Longimaeus to Nehemiah in chapter 2. Looked at Nehemiah, who was crying, broken, over the devastation of Jerusalem. He said, why are you sad, bro? You've been working for me for a while. I've never seen you sad. He said, oh, don't kill me, king. I'm sad for my people. And on that day, March 14th, 445 B.C., Artaxerxes Longimaeus told Nehemiah, take my credit card, take my men, take the stuff, and go rebuild Jerusalem. Thus starting the timepiece of a 483-year period. If you take the Jewish calendar, 360 days per year, unlike our 365-day-per-year calendar, and add it or multiply it times 483, it's 173,880 days from the going forth of the command to rebuild Jerusalem. March 14th, 445 B.C. And if you fast forward 173,880 days, it takes you to April 6th, A.D. 32 the very day that Jesus rode in and he wept and he said guys it's all I went to great lengths to orchestrate my party I sent out invitations 483 years ago you didn't save the date this is the day that makes for your peace I'm here you didn't make room for me and he weeps and laments fulfilling the in my estimation one of the greatest prophecies to the date. And he says, you missed it. Why did they miss it? They didn't know Bible prophecy. They weren't reading their Bibles. They weren't looking for God. Here's just a quick reminder for you in the last month of the year in December. It's that time of Advent where we make room for Jesus. We, we, we look at our houses and our hearts, just like he'll clean the temple. We'll talk about that next week, apparently. And Jesus makes room for himself again lest you miss it. You don't even need to raise your hand or nod, but have you ever missed something really, really important? What about spiritually? Do you think you're missing anything right now? I mean, I'm not, I'm not trying to be mean or anything, but <laughs> for sure, dude, Lord. And that's why we come to him in grace. And the good news is, is that Jesus doesn't miss anything. He went right to the cross. No one else knew what's going on. Even his disciples were like, what's happening? He's like, all right, I got this myself apparently. And he did what needed to be done. And then he comes back and he gives to us full measures of grace. He says, guys, I did it all now, like John Chow. Be driven with a purpose and a passion. Don't be too sad for dumb things and too angry for weird things and too sarcastic to have a soft heart. Careful. Be sad. Get angry. See things from a holistic point of view for the kingdom, though. How are we going to do that? The Bible says in the next couple of verses, I read it to you, we'll study it next week, that when he went into the temple, the priest tried to destroy him, but the common people hung on his words. They couldn't do it because they're, they're about to take him out. They're like, wait a minute, everybody's listening to him. Everybody's digging it. Can I just encourage you? 
as I have the worship team come up and join us right now, that tonight or tomorrow or in the next 22 days, as we make room, we did our first Advent at our house last night, December 1st, as we read out of a devotional book and opened up the first envelope above the fireplace. Considering all of the promises of Jesus and the purpose of God in this great month of December, not knowing how much longer we have, knowing that Jesus has been faithful, that the, the clock is ticking, things are important, and Jesus says, hey, Weep with those who weep. Get angry and do something. Look at the, it's so easy to look at the injustice or stuff and just make a comment on Facebook. Or even just make a comment on your mind. You and I have comments right now in our minds about those people that killed John Chow. Comments. That probably won't help them. They heard a message, whether they understood it or not, that Jesus loves them. Wouldn't it be awesome if we loved them? That's an example. That if our hearts broke for them, and that possibly some way, shape, or form that we did stuff in our little lives, I don't necessarily see us going to the islands of India. Maybe you will. But you probably are going to go to Fred Myers later. There's people there that need Jesus. You're probably going to go to work this week, and there's people there that need Jesus. You probably live near people or with people that need Jesus. Jesus is so for you, not against you. Would you close your eyes and pray with me? Lord, we thank you for studying your word and seeing your passion, the passion of the Christ knowing, Lord, your heart of compassion and sorrow for the hurting. Seeing then it turned into zeal and action. Knowing the beginning from the end. I pray, God, you'd bless this time of communion as we remember what you've done and proclaim your death until you return. Lord, you bless the believers here, those who believe you. In, in Jesus' name, those who know you, who are saved, who, who, who came to church this morning, not religiously, but expectantly. They came here this morning because they needed a word. They needed a direction. They needed something. They, yeah, I go to church because I need, I need some direction. I need Jesus. I pray that you give that to them in Jesus' name. Bless them. May it be profound and prolific. May it be powerful and purposeful. I pray for the non-believers here, the curious ones. Lord, and and I'm, I'm talking to you right now. We're going to take communion. and you, you also can take communion if you give your life to Jesus. If you surrender to him and say, this man, Jesus, he is unlike any other man in the history of the universe, and he deserves my allegiance, and he deserves me to bow the knee, and I do that right now in Jesus' name, and I give my life to him and surrender my past, my present, my future, looking for that peace. If that's you right now, would you just raise up your hand to him right now? Make the deal now. Give your life to Jesus. Surrender to him. Extend your hand to his. I see his hands going up. Bless them, Lord. Maybe you're at home right now, just nod into that. Say, yeah, Lord, I take my life. Thank you, Jesus, that what you do is enough. What we do now is remember and celebrate you. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said...